Welcome to this episode of Scores and Pours with me, Jill Mott, and radio host, classical music, and jazz extraordinaire, Ms. Emily Reese. How are you today? I'm good, sommelier Jill Mott, who teaches me about every single thing I love drinking that has alcohol in it. And some things that you don't like drinking. Something every once in a while. Not that often, but every once in a while. I'd say I bet... There's a good 25% of things that you're like, this is awful. Don't ever make me put this in my mouth. You think 25%? I was going to say more like 99 out of 100 times it's perfect. I'll take that. Okay. I'll take that. Well, today's episode is very special because, as you know, for those of you uh, that have listened to all 100-plus episodes, we've started to interview some of our favorite cats uh, that either make cider, make wine, composers. And today, we have the owner of one of the best wine shops in the country, for sure the best in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Miss Gretchen Skedsvold, the owner of Henry and Son. Hello, Gretchen. Hi. Flatter me. (laughs) (laughs) She's changing colors as we speak, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to have Gretchen on because I've known Gretchen for a handful of years now. I work at Henry and Son, as I've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast, and it's always um, an honor to have conversations about about wine with Gretchen. We back and forth often, as often as we can uh, in our busy schedules. And so it's going to be a pleasure to have her on today to ask her questions about how she got into wine, how she decided to open a wine shop here in, in Minneapolis of all places. You could have opened one in Rio de Janeiro or somewhere like that. And uh, so Gretchen, tell me why Minneapolis? Um, I, I live here. Well, before you, okay, <laughs> true. How, what? Because you have a you have a history of living in New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before you're Midwesterner. Yeah. Right from the Dakotas, uh-huh. North Dakota. North right? Dakota, yeah. And so, how did you decide to move back to Minnesota? Well, uh, I I never envisioned. Well, before I moved to Minnesota, I never envisioned moving back to Minnesota. Well, I shouldn't say back. Moving to Minnesota because I never lived here before I moved here. Uh, I, I, as you said, I, I, I lived in New York before moving here. For that, I lived in Brazil, in Rio. I never thought of opening a wine store before moving to Minneapolis either, so maybe there's something there. Uh, so you were, you were actually in Brooklyn, you mm-hmm. were in, and you, you weren't thinking, let's go back to Minnesota, be closer to family, and let's open a wine shop. Right, that no, was, okay. that didn't, that, the thought never crossed my mind. Uh, when my husband and I met in when we were living in Brooklyn or before we moved to Brooklyn, we started kicking around the idea of opening something together. We were both corporate cubicle office workers and wanted you know to open maybe a restaurant or a beer garden or something, a wine bar even, but never a wine shop. That never that never came up until we moved here, and. We moved. We moved to Bryn Mawr a few months after we moved to Minneapolis. Um, bought a house, and there wasn't any place nearby to buy wine. And I would go around Minneapolis to different shops, <laughs> <laughs> buy a couple of bottles here, a couple of bottles there. I'd ask shops about bringing in things that I'd had in New York. I ordered wine online from the shop, those shops that I shopped at in New York, and it just at some point I was like, well. I wish there were a wine shop in Bryn Mawr because it's a cute little yeah. community um, neighborhood. It's got a cute little downtown area. Mm-hmm. But we looked into opening a wine shop in our neighborhood because, you know, if, 
if you can't find it, open it yourself. Yep. I don't know. There's a school there. Was that the problem? Was there's a school in the neighborhood? Is that the reason you couldn't open it? No, it's just it's just too residential. There's yeah. The, yeah, the the zoning is too restrictive. Um, you need to be in a commercial area. So anyway, we couldn't open it there. So then I started driving around close to the neighborhood to see what parts of town we could open it in. And along Glenwood Avenue happened to be possible, legal, for opening a wine shop. So we did it here. So, but why so much natty? Like, how did you get into natural wine? Because that's what I yeah. think is so special about this shop. Like, there's plenty of places to go buy wine mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, but there's no place like this. Yeah. You know? Well, and that happened in Brooklyn, getting into natural wine. That is... And only by virtue of living across the street from this little restaurant called Diner, well, a pair of restaurants owned by the same guys, um, called Diner and Marlowe and Sons. And um, they're like farm to table. They started in, I think, like the early aughts in one of the, they were one of the first places in, in that southern part of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to open up. And they, I think, were pretty early advocates of natural wine. Um, and when we started drinking wine there, I didn't know anything about natural wine. I just knew that the Chinon and tasted like, you know, cow butt smells, which I thought was super interesting. You know, it was, it was so it was so good and weird and good. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know it was natural. I just knew it was weird. And then, you know, when we traveled, we went to Paris one Thanksgiving and we're waiting for a table at this little seafood restaurant. And across the street was this hole-in-the-wall wine shop with boxes piled to the ceiling, like those wooden wine boxes, just like, just a total dump. Um, I mean, you know, cool, but they weren't trying to impress anybody. And there was this lady pouring wine in the back of the, of the shop. Um, she had these really cool, really pretty, um, white wines. She was from the Loire. She had this amazing sparkling wine, that she called a pet nat. And I'd never had a pet nat before. My husband, Mark, hadn't had a pet nat before. And we loved her wine so much, we bought, like, I don't know, four or five bottles and put them in our suitcase and brought them home back to New York with us. And she didn't have an importer when we were talking to her. She's like, oh, yeah, I don't have an importer yet. I'm not in the United States yet. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to find an importer for you. I'm going to talk to our wine shop, and I'm going to get our local wine shop, and I'm going to get your wines in the United States so I can buy them there. And, of course, I forgot for, like, a year. (laughs) And finally emailed her a year later, and she's like, oh, I have an importer now. It's Jenny and Francois. And sure enough, like, a few months later, our little local wine shop had her wines, and it was um, the winemaker was um, Coralie Delicheneau. I'm probably totally slaughtering her name. But, no, I know her wines are beautiful, and, I, I mean, we have them in the shop. To this day, I don't know if they're on the shelf right now, but I mean, so is that is that kind that of was the, was that the, moment of okay. like wow, this natural wine thing is pretty cool, like pretty amazing, yeah. and it's people too. Like these are wines made by real people, not some you know imaginary person that a, pushes a giant yeah, well, or an imaginary person that a giant corporation makes up to put on their. The farmer on the website, as it were, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. But you're also a musician, or you were, right? You you played I, a little, you dabbled, and I took uh, like ten years of Suzuki piano lessons as a kid, from age like seven to seventeen. I would sneak into the practice rooms at college and keep up my piano my piano songs. And Suzuki, you keep up a repertoire of forever songs, so I would go in and play all my songs so I didn't lose my forever songs, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I played the clarinet in band. I wasn't very good at it. I was pretty bad at the clarinet, actually. And I sang. I was in the choir. 
But you can still you can still definitely hold your own. I mean, I've gone over to jam with uh, Gretchen's husband. Gretchen's husband Mark plays the guitar, and he's you know well versed in a few instruments. And I'll like I'll pound on the drums. That's pretty much what I do. Is I pound on things, and it sounds like there's maybe a, mo a moderate kind of rhythm. And Gretchen, I was like, Gretchen, play me something on the piano. And I was like, well. Thanks for making us all sound like shit, Gretchen. Because it was so I mean, good. I don't jam. I can't jam though. I can't. I'm very like I know, I can. I have a repertoire that I can play, but I don't off road. I'm not good off road. Oh, I, I loved. I loved it so much. Well, so what? What do you want to listen to? You guys were talking about music, and then we'll taste wine. Well, yeah. I mean, you gave us some really great jazz choices, and uh, you know, obviously a great classical choice because it was Bach. But um, but let's start with the jazz because you mentioned some. You both mentioned Brazil. Mm -hmm. And one of your pianists that you mentioned was Vince Guaraldi, who mm -hmm. loved Brazilian music. And one of my favorite albums of his, he plays with a Brazilian guitarist named Bola Sete. So I, I, before we hear that, can you just give us a little history about you and Brazil? Because I know you speak Portuguese. Yeah, and I speak Portuguese because I learned Spanish in high school. Uh, and, and a Brazilian exchange student came and lived with my family in high school. And so... I was like, would would read her like books in Portuguese, and was like, oh, this is kind of like Spanish, and you know, thought I could try to learn Portuguese because I knew Spanish, but they're really not very similar. I don't know. Anyway, so I went back to Brazil with her for the summer after she stayed with us, and um, fell in love with Brazil. And in college, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Changed my major a few times, but had been studying Portuguese in college as my language requirement, and eventually majored in Portuguese. Um, and then after college, went to Brazil and worked there for a few years as in an office job. So is that <laughs> what you love about Vince Guaraldi, or is your connection there because of Peanuts? Because that's, of Peanuts, that's, yeah, and my grandpa. And my grandpa legit. was really into jazz. Yeah, okay. because okay. of the Peanuts Christmas, the, the, the famous Christmas album. But I also love jazz piano because of, you know, playing the piano, but, you know, yeah. and my grandfather was played a lot of Vince Guaraldi yeah. records when I was a little kid. It is, I think, one of the best Christmas albums. Oh. Like, it's so timeless. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. in a hundred years, it'll be. It. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, so are we going to listen to, like, Vince yeah. Guaraldi Christmas, or are we going to no. listen to Vince Guaraldi summer? <laughs> okay, just making sure. Yeah, yeah, Christmas in July. Sure. We could, but, uh, <laughs> but no, we'll listen to uh, something from this album he did with Bola Sete in um, 1964. first peanuts or this album this was first okay because i think that charles Scholz was a fan of vince guaraldi and that that's how that happened okay But 
But like my favorite thing about Vince Guaraldi, everything is so approachable, right? It's just mm -hmm. like so easy to love. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so first of all, I'm trying not to dance. I, like, get out of my seat, because Emily will yell at me about how the audio sucks when I do stuff like that, or I'm trying not to, like, beat on the, like, beat on the table kind of thing. But not only, this sounds like sunshine, and this wine tastes like sunshine. Like, we, we did put wine in our glass already, mm -hmm. our glasses, everyone. Cheers. Just scores and pours. Just scores and pours. And we are tasting a Microbio. It is a wine that is made from the Rufete grape. And it's called Afinador de Estrellas, which means like you're kind of focusing in on the stars. And I mean, there are several meanings, but I, I like that one um, especially. And I don't know, what do you ladies think? I think it smells, it tastes like very ripe fruit on the palate. It's a pet nat from this vintage, 2020. And yeah, what do you ladies think? I mean, this might be a bit of a stretch. I like to find patterns or meaning where there maybe is none, but you were saying this is a grape used commonly in, in port wine production. The Portuguese settled Brazil and we're listening to Brazilian music. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you know, the interview is done. <laughs> So the Rufete grape is very popular in the Douro for, for port production, the Dao, um, so we're getting closer to Spain then, and then across uh, the border from Portugal to Spain in a village, or a region, excuse me, called Arribes. And you go a little further south, and you're going to find yourself in the area around Segovia, where Ismael Gozalo, the winemaker here, has a project mostly centered uh, on the white Verdejo grape. And this is his very rare Rufete, which we'll talk a little bit more about this wine in a moment. But what does the music make you think of, Emily? Um, I do love the, all that Portuguese connection is really fun. Um, it's one of my favorite smells to wine when it's like minerally mm -hmm. like that and it just smells like wet rocks. I just love that. It's like literally one of my favorite wine smells. I just can't get over how ripe the palate is, even though the wine is not um, overly ripe. It's 12% alcohol. It's, we're not too full bodied here. We're in the medium bodied camp, but just how it like lays on your palate and it's like a comforter. Yeah. It's not a sheet, it's a comforter. It's very savory. Mm -hmm. It reminds me it reminds me a little bit of um Arno Roberts made a rose out of the Toriga Nacional grape, mm -hmm. which is another Portuguese grape. And it, it's got some similarities to that in my mind, without the bubbles. For sure, and we're really lucky to have Arno Roberts here. I know that there are a few places in the city that championed it a long time ago, we'll say like five or six years ago, four years ago, when Arno Roberts was very new to Minneapolis, which makes me wonder, you know, what have been some of the more difficult elements to be opening a wine shop like this that focuses on smaller producers, indie producers, natural producers, doing that in Minneapolis as opposed to say Brooklyn already there's you know there's a market for it etc but you know versus a, perhaps a different small market this is the only question I didn't have notes <laughs> I answered all the questions in my notes except for this one I was like x x x x x x, x. <laughs> I'll do that one later I guess 
by the same token, the challenge, I mean, I guess on the one hand, we kind of had to create a market for natural wine. We did and we didn't. There were a lot of people here who were already drinking these wines at the, the, the restaurants, which is kind of what gave me the idea for, you know, I was, there was a problem. It was a dilemma that I couldn't quite figure out when, before we opened the shop. I was like, all these, there's all these great restaurants in Minneapolis that are carrying all these amazing wines, yet there's no place you can go if you like a wine and buy them. I mean, there are places, but there, there was no one shop that sold all of the cool wine. You know, like, like I was saying before, I'd have to like drive around to five different shops and find like three wines here or three wines there. Um, and a lot of times I would ask for wines at shops and they would be like, oh, that'll never sell in Minneapolis. I got that a lot. And, and that was another kind of like challenge in my mind. I was like, well, I mean, maybe this is narcissistic, but I was like, well, if I'm looking for these wines, there must be other people out there like me who are looking for these wines. Or maybe people who don't know that they should be looking for these mm-hmm. wines. Like maybe if it's sort of like if you, if you serve it, they will come. Like if you sell it, like you just need to make people know that what they're drinking isn't as good as what they could be drinking yeah. by selling it. And also, I mean, I'm a big believer in like people, people don't need to be pandered to or talked down to or uh, you shouldn't assume people are less sophisticated than they, than they are on the one hand. And also like people rise to the challenge too, right? Like, if there's something new and cool for them to try, I, like, I, I don't know why one would assume that they're just going to, you know, I don't know, not embrace new ideas. So how did you get people to pay attention? Was it, like, through tastings? Like, how did you get people to understand that this is the spot? Well, I think we had a lot of I, we, I don't think. I know we had a lot of help from restaurants, like the Bachelor Farmer for one, sent a lot of people our way. Like there were, we had, you know, advocates out there in the restaurant world who appreciated what we were doing. I mean, Jill's worked at a lot of restaurants and knows a lot of people in the restaurant world. And, you know, there's this network of people who do appreciate good wine and they talk. And so like first, I think we attracted a lot of the, yeah, sure, more sophisticated wine drinkers, but the sophisticated wine drinkers are the people who are telling people at restaurants what to drink and then diners come to where the people who serve them at the bachelor farmer or the people who serve them at Tilia or the people who serve them at Terso tell them to go buy this bottle of wine that you know sure. they can't find anywhere else so I have a great anecdote so the, the other day it was actually about a week and a half ago I had a gentleman come in right now I work on Tuesdays it kind of depends on when I'm in town or what I'm doing but right now I work on Tuesdays this nice gentleman came in I recognized his face and, you know, we just started letting people back into the shop and how are you and we're catching up quickly. And he says, I'm so glad you're open. You know, I'm so happy to be like exploring these new wines. And I was like, well, what what was your little aha moment with, with more natural or smaller producer wines? And he was like, this shop? <laughs> He's like, I hated wine before this shop. And now, like, I, yeah, I still drink beer, but I drink. 25% as much beer as I used to, and it's flip-flopped. And now I drink, you know, a couple really fun bottles a week, and so thank you so much for being here. And I was just like, yes, you are welcome, my fair friend. Yeah. So that's awesome. What, what are, what's next on the, what's next on the I mean, let's, docket? let's continue on the piano train, if that's okay, and listen to a little Dave Brubeck. I mean, what do you love about Dave Brubeck? What made you pick him? I knew Dave Brubeck without knowing that I knew Dave Brubeck because, again, my grandfather, who was in really into jazz, played a lot of jazz records um, 
you know, I heard a lot of jazz growing up because my grandpa loved to play his jazz records. And Dave Brubeck was one of the albums that he that he had. I, I didn't realize until years later, after I had already kind of rediscovered Dave Brubeck myself. Um, so, I mean, what do I like? I, I, I get the same kind of feeling from Dave Brubeck that I get from Vince Guaraldi. It's just kind yeah. of like relaxing. I feel like it's like a musical sedative. Like my muscles just get kind of like limp and floppy and I just want to like sit back and just sort of space out. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we? Shall we yeah, limp, out, limp, is... limp up and or limp out and <laughs> whatever you just said? Yeah. I swear I've only had three sips of wine, I swear. <laughs> There's a great album of um, Dave Brubeck's from about the same time as the Vince Guaraldi album we just listened to, 1965. It's actually from a bunch of music that he wrote for a TV show, which how cool would that be to be like a kid watching TV growing up and the soundtracks by Dave Brubeck? But uh, the TV show was Mr. Broadway, and the album he made it into then in 1965 was called Jazz Impressions of New York. And so all of the, not all of the tunes, but a lot of the tunes are like named after, you know, Central Park or Summer in New York or something like along those lines. started playing we're all like ah <laughs> Dave Rubeck we do love you too yes but Paul Desmond very often at his side in those earlier in the 60s um, they went their separate ways for Paul Desmond was a little bit of an interesting fella and so they they went their separate ways they got back together eventually but um but man when they played together it sounds so good so i love that uh, you were like i like dave brubeck i'm like yes can you play can you just do one more just another like 30 seconds on one song from that album because it's so good oh, you want that same album yeah okay this is broadway bossa nova this is a really famous tune from the album Can you bossa nova? I can samba. Okay. Really? <laughs> okay, I can I samba, just, but I can't bossa nova. Okay, I just <laughs> I, I couldn't help but ask. So great with your shower no. wine. Yes, exactly. Now, so was. Do you think it's? It's obviously the rhythm that's bossa noving, right? But are we getting as much because of the percussive aspects as well? Like, if they were to omit the the percussion section, you know, save the of course Brubeck's part, would we would we get that bossa nova feel, or the is the percussion really carrying that the bass? Let's listen to it again. You'll hear. Okay. 
Can you hear the bass? Can you hear the bass, Gretchen? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're all like, yes, yeah. Emily, you're right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, that's He's amazing. Down the groove for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, which the the wine, I must say, has a, a quite a bit of groove. I'm noticing that Gretchen's spitting, and her wine is gone. I'm not spitting. My wine is almost gone. And for the first time, Ms. Emily Reese is behind all of us. Not not, not anymore. anymore. Yeah. So, how does for every the first time? Sorry. Go on. <laughs> How does everybody feel now that the wine is, you know, coming to temperature, as as we like to say in the wine world, when it loses that really refrigerator chill? Uh, what do you ladies think? I love the, it's getting like a little fruitier even. And I love how you can just taste it on your lips after you take a drink. I just love the fruit, kind of st- strawberry-ish kind of. That's a really common progression for wines that may not display themselves as being fruity. Um, if they do have a little bit more of a mineral side, sometimes fruit will come out more with with as a wine loses its temperature. And Rufete is a grape that has a boisterous amount of fruit. You know, it is used in port production due to its fruit-forward quality, its ability to get a little bit higher alcohol, and it you know it does have quite a bit of color. This Rufete is made in a petnat fashion, which we've talked on the show several times, so we won't waste Gretchen's time because she knows what a pet net is, so look it up or listen to one of those episodes. But a pet net is a naturally sparkling wine. In this case, the grapes are all grown on granitic soils, which is really cool because it does have a little bit of a chunky quality to it. And then he's bottling it without any sulfur additions whatsoever, which is really cool because a lot of times those wines can either be really funky and sometimes faulty, and other times it's really hard to get a wine that's sort of this fruity and precise and minerally and not have any sort of defects and not be using any sulfur. So hats off to Ishmael. By the way, I told Emily, I was uh, when I mentioned um, Ishmael is a homie of mine, and when I was first telling her about him years ago, I was like, Ishmael, whenever I go to hug him, you know, people naturally, I think, depending on how you shake hands, you naturally kind of bend left and go in. Uh, and Ishmael was like, no, Jill, we're like that. We bend right. And I was like, we're like that. We've been right. Why? And he's like, so our hearts can touch. And I was like, okay, Ismail. Okay. Which. Well, cheers to that. Cheers to hearts touching. All right. So I want to ask Gretchen. Really active bubbles. Yeah. They're like really quick bubbles. And they kind of infuse themselves in the elixir, as, as it were, like really quickly. But they're very refreshing. And really well integrated. I, I like them a lot. What do you think, Gretch? I, th- I think it's. I think I love that. Um, I think it's getting a candied, kind of like a candied quality mm-hmm. on the nose now. A little caramely something. Yeah, I hear that. Maybe that. And that. May, you guys might be like in the ripeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Candied. Just on the nose, either. not on the palate. Everybody loves pet nats these days. They're all the rage. I love a pet nat. You love a pet nat. Everybody loves a pet nat. Pet nat. What, um, Gretchen? What are you into right now? Like when you come shopping. Oh, boy. Besides, like, when you jump into the shop quickly and you're like, Jill, I need this. I'm going to grab this. (laughs) Put it on my tab. I'm in and out. (laughs) What what are you into? I really like like sparkling wines. I really like sparkling wines a lot. Pet nuts and champagne and even, like, sparkling wine in the can. Um, I really like the... I like the kind of palate cleansing, refreshing quality of bubbles. I really like, um, I have a love-hate relationship with Sauvignon Blanc. 
I really like good Sauvignon Blanc. You don't need to tell me the ones you're hating on because that's, you know, who, who wants to hate on things? He's, right, there's too yeah. much hate in the world. What, who are you loving on? Like, who's one of your favorites? Uh, any any cool Sancerre, like Loire, Loire Sauvignon Blancs, like Sancerre, Puy Fume. What are some other? Skin Contact Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. is really, really good sometimes. Didn't we just have a Skin ta- Contact We had a mat- the Matero. Yeah, the Greek one. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, I think when a lot of people hear about pet gnats and we're talking about skin fermented Sauvignon Blancs, things like that, I think people jump to natural wine quickly and that's fine sometimes as we know there are a lot of pet nets that are not natural and skin fermented wines that are not nat- not natural and then it becomes like well what is it well, what is natural wine what is it so because you've opened a shop that is i try to tell the guests here we're not a natural wine shop we champion a lot of natural mm-hmm. wines but we are more about sort of the farming the smaller producers and natural is is preferred, but there's a lot of people doing great work in a lot of different mm-hmm. realms, right? So, what if someone asks you what is natural wine? What does that mean to you? Well, and if you're like Jill, that's a stupid question because no. it's just it's asked too many times. It's, then we can we can omit this. Altogether. I guess natural wine is different things to different people, right? Like some people are very dogmatic about natural wine needing to be, you know, only grapes and fermentation, which, mm-hmm. I mean, just by virtue of making wine, you're interfering in the process. There's this, the, I mean, there's, there's, gonna, there's gotta be a human element. It's not like wine just makes itself. I mean, I guess, mm-hmm. it, there, there's, there's spontaneous fermentation in nature, like what elephants and monkeys get drunk off of eating fermented fruit, but like. Well, and I've said, I've said uh, quite a few times to guests here when they're like, well, you know, natural wine and this and that, and I'm like, listen, true natural wine, is when a bird bites off a few too many berries, some fall on the ground, and for and then they start to ferment naturally, and then for about one minute you have the potential for juice on the ground, a little puddle, to, and then all of a sudden it's vinegar in like four days. That's a natural wine. And then their <laughs> eyes glaze over and they're like, oh. <laughs> if, they, if they're lucky enough to even go back for the puddle, you know? So like, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You keep going. I agree well, with you about the human process thing. Yeah, I think, uh, what I think, to me what's important is supporting small independent producers of anything, but in our case, wine, um, <laughs> Just yeah, you know, we can't sell every, yeah. <laughs> we can't sell everything here. <laughs> we have a corner for underwear. <laughs> Naturally produced underwear and kale. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so supporting the little guy, supporting, because, and, and why? Because, well, because big corporations don't need any more help than they already get but because individuals and the ones at least the ones that we support are taking care of the land they're farming properly they're you know they're not and 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 I think it's a more artisanal artistic product when it's an individual who's making something that's preserving the culture that they've learned from their ancestors or their mentors or um it's 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 I would say that like artisanship is kind of a dying it's getting squeezed out by commodity everything I mean mm-hmm. you know it and and it ends up being a I don't know a more special product when people are in it for the craft over the profit I mean of course people need to make money right like you need to survive but 
how much is enough? Yeah. There's a gentleman who used to work here, uh, Jim, who's a dear friend of both Gretchen and myself. I've known Jim for close to a decade. And Jim says, when something's cheap, someone's getting screwed. And I think it's very true when we think of wine, you know, I mean, wine and spirits and the like. I mean, there's um, obviously things need to be inexpensive sometimes, and that's fine. But, um, you know, I'm of the of the cloth of like drink less, drink better, because some of these wines you literally can only have a glass of, and it's like all your palate can handle because it's just so much flavor. So, but that's, that's a whole nother, another side. Should we, should we music quick? Should we Bach? Let's Bach. I mean, so you mentioned you liked cello and organ from Bach. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of Bach's, actually one of the violin sonatas or partitas that he wrote that has been, change from keyboard and violin to organ and cello. Mm -hmm. And so let's listen. This is his violin sonata number two, but cello and organ. So let's do it. over there looks like she's just she's just gone to heaven there's like churchy sounds and there's no harpsichord but there sounds like there could be and emily's all happy over there meanwhile gretchen the guest it, I'm, not, I'm, I'm like looking i didn't even look over there to see what gretchen's reaction was so i was like oh let's just watch emily reese go up to heaven right now sorry keep going about these particular pieces that Bach wrote for violin and harpsichord is that even though it's for two instruments it sounds like three so you can hear a melody a, a counter melody and a bass when you're listening to this music it's really cool it sounds like it there easily could be three musicians playing but it's split over two So can you can you separate that? Can you hear cello, upper organ hand, mm -hmm. and bass organ feet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so obviously we don't have like 17 years to listen to this right now or else because it's we're, we're you know Gretchen has two children a husband you know like a job that requires 90 hours a week it's in a addition of to small the, animals it, it, a small true. flock of, an, of large animals it's true chickens you had chickens she got like a farm and basically and then of course you know runs uh, Henry and Son so I want to keep try to keep it brief but what so what about that music Gretchen I mean, besides the fact that it's obviously there's brilliance in every note, like what about it do you love? Also, I might not have picked the same piece you were thinking of, and I mean a different movement nonetheless. So I, mean, I, I didn't have any particular 
peace in mind. Um, I mean, I love listening to like pipe dreams on in the morning, like when I'm driving back from my riding lesson, like first thing in the morning. They put it on super early in the morning, like probably because they think like. Pipe Dreams is a show that's been on uh, that's been on public radio for years, hosted by a man named Michael Barone, who uh, collects Citroen cars. And we met during Bastille Day celebrations while he was showing four of his Citroen cars. But in any event, yeah, Michael Barone is an absolute genius, and he has this show about pipe organ music called Pipe Dreams, and he's had it for decades. So it's that's amazing. yeah, I love it. Like, yeah, it makes me feel like I've gone to heaven or like I'm, you know, like <laughs> meditating in a church. I've been, speaking of meditating, I've been doing, I've been doing yoga to Bach. It's very motivating to do yoga to, to Bach. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, there's something, when we were just listening to the piece just now, there's something about Bach that like tickles the part of my brain that never really learned mathematics, all that, like the, the, the like burgeoning mathematician in my mind, like there's something so orderly and soothing about like everything just kind of like falls into place. It's like solving a puzzle like over and over and over again. Uh, maybe it's the obsessive compulsive, the tiny obsessive compulsive homunculus that like gets into it. But <laughs> You know what though, I, knowing I'm a Libra, and knowing Gretchen is a Libra, and that if things are just out of bed, it's just you got to bring it back in, and you got to rein it in, and it's going to be a project for life kind of thing. So I could, I could totally see that. Yeah. Um, do you find that with all Bach that you like, or that you listen? I really to? like playing Bach on the piano. That's one of the pieces, and I didn't realize it until very recently um, that I really liked Bach. Like Bach was kind of. I don't know, kind of like Cherny, you know, like when I was mm -hmm. a kid, like Cherny's like all these finger exercises, like scales and arpeggios and like all these little kind of like strengthening and kind of like calisthenics for your fingers for when you're learning to play the piano. And I always felt like when I was a kid, like Bach to me felt like Cherny, like, okay, I'm doing this. I know I'm doing this to make my fingers stronger and all this stuff, you know, to make sure that all the notes are the same length. But now that I'm older, I just realized that it, w it was the music that kind of spoke the most to me for the reasons that I just said. Like, it, it just, like, it's soothing to me. It makes things mm -hmm. feel like they're all orderly and in place. And, and there's something kind of spiritual about it, too. I mean, he composed a lot of, mm -hmm. of religious music, so I don't know. It's yeah. Gretchen, I like playing Bach on the piano. <laughs> okay, Gretchen. It's okay. <laughs> amazing. As I said before, many times, we're here in Minneapolis. If if there were, because you, you've, once in a while, we've talked about a, not a Henry and Son 2. I mean, it wouldn't be that. But we've, there's been talks. Not that that will ever even happen. And there's like deli talks. There's like all these talks, right? What if you could just, right now, you blink and, you know, safety is a thing, obviously. Where would you open a, a wine shop? A Henry and Son du. <laughs> I Anywhere in like, the world. Money is no object. Yeah. COVID is gone. The, no Delta, no Gamma yeah. variants, all I, the things. I, I, so like when Mark, we go to visit my parents, my husband and I go to visit my parents in Florida very regularly. And I we always kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be great to have like a little natural wine shop here the, the wine in florida is pretty terrible um there's one there's one, there's one. well-known pete in naples yes yeah, pete's that, got a yeah. natural sorry we should um, be <laughs> go, ahead. go you started over about just no, pete no there's oh, one oh i don't know i don't know pete but i i know that i know of a really great natural wine He's shop in naples yeah, yeah. i don't I'm, so florida's one one place i guess to me it's 
I, like I I think of the question like what else could we do with Henry and Son than where we are now like I I don't know I think a lot about like the carbon footprint of the bottles of wine that we sell and importing from overseas all of these wines not that we import them but you know just the cost of shipping wines and you know glass bottles overseas like I think that there's an interesting kind of future frontier in local in local wine, Minnesota wine particularly, and, you know, just alternate forms of selling wine as a retailer. Like, how can you do better than just doing it the way that people have done it for hundreds of years? On my run today, I saw Vitis everywhere. I was like, man, there's a lot of humidity. But if I just came here and asked the people if I could prune their vines... You know, you wonder what people could could achieve in this area. You know, the limestone bluffs, that's been talked about a lot. Down by Red Wing, that whole area. Gretchen has always, since I've met her, been extremely candid about what she knows in wine, what she wants to learn about wine, what she loves about wine, but also very humble. And I think one thing that you and I have talked about often is like the snobbery around wine and not only like the sommelier, master of wine, master, all that stuff, but also then there's the verbiage of the lexicon of wine. But now transpose that, if you will, to to natural wine, I think there's an incredible amount of snobbery around natural wine, like people that fall into those dogmatic camps. And it, more than snobbery, it's like click, kind of clicky. Can you speak a little bit to the snobbery of wine? Or I guess I think that any time, at the risk of misidentifying something here, I, I think that any time people's identities get so wrapped up in a thing, like one, one thing, like wine for example like if it's you know that it becomes a scene or when when people sort of join it because it's a scene or because it's there's this like tribe that they want to be a part of and they take themselves too seriously and it's become sort of like showing off your knowledge I don't know there's this like ego thing that gets wound up into a thing that really isn't I don't know it's it's wine. It's it's something to be. I guess you could say the same of music, or you could say the same of finance, or you could say the same of you know medicine. Like there's there's people in all sorts. And I guess that's it's an interesting. Not to pat myself on the back, but at the, that point is like I I got into wine thinking wine and food too um thinking that like oh i'm gonna escape all the jargon and people patting themselves on the back and you know all of the like snobbery of high finance because that's the that's the my day job um but it's it's everywhere it's not it's not the it's not the it's i mean those people are everywhere so but there's good people everywhere in all those in all those realms in music and in finance and in people might not think in finance, but there are in finance and, mm-hmm. and, 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 yeah. and in wine. And, you know, you just got to find the people that are doing it not for their own to make themselves feel more important or because they're trying to fill the void. So do you think that it has a lot to do with when there's an enjoyment factor, like someone say they want to enjoy, they want to learn about wine or, or, but when they, when there becomes sort of a ego involved that, 
that identifies with something so strongly that it becomes more about their ego than perhaps their passion for the thing? Maybe, maybe I don't know. I guess maybe I shouldn't go around psychoanalyzing people, but like <laughs> I that I suspect that might be part of it, you know, like I I think that you know, if you can laugh at yourself and like if you've got lots of different interests and you enjoy like the people like wine's fun because it's enjoyable it's a celebratory drink you drink it with friends you share it it's you know it it loses the joy when it becomes when it becomes a profit machine or when it becomes a veblen good that you're showing off to your buddies mm-hmm. because you've got the coolest bottle of wine like it, it loses its magic yeah. um when when it becomes a competition Well, here's to the bossa nova. To Gretchen. To Henry and son. To natural wine. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find a wine list and a playlist. You can also support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We have a link there for merchandise, too. If you're into a Scores and Pours hoodie or T-shirt, we've also got corkscrews and stickers. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Scores and Pours. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June.